Hello, please let me see your ticket subs for the double-edged double bill. Tonight's features include time-traveling lovers and why Lisa Wires. week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. And oh hi, I'm Thomas Mariani. And I am Adam. I did not hit her. I did not. Thomas. I mean, I would hope so. Yeah, I mean, how's your sex life? (laughs) (laughs) Jesus Christ. Don't touch me, motherfucker. <laughs> Alright, we're getting those out of the way. Because yeah. uh, no. it's going to be a bit. Because uh, for this week, uh, for our topic of romance, um, because it's the week of Valentine's Day, so this is for all you lovers out there. Yes. Yes. And uh, our good feature, because at the end of last week we picked our good and bad feature for the double-edged double bill, uh, based on our randomly selected choices, our good feature is Somewhere in Time, the 1980 film starring Christopher Reeve, and our bad pick is The Room uh, from auteur Tommy Wiseau. I mean, if you want to call him that, sure. He was the writer, director, star, producer... Um, I think I don't money know launderer. That I, I still don't. Yeah, oh, yeah, it's gotta be something. <laughs> probably. Yeah, undoubtedly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I'd call it auteur though. <laughs> Maybe who knows? But uh, it's interesting because you talked about this at the end of our last episode, Adam. Uh, you most likely wouldn't get like two guys on a podcast talking about two romantic movies, but I don't think we're necessarily against a good movie about a good romance. No, not at all. I mean, there's there's nothing better than you know seeing two people in love and thinking that you know true love can exist and things like i mean no it's when they get too schmaltzy maybe it's not my cup of tea but i'm even then not opposed to watching them and i still understand why people gravitate towards them it's just they're typically feel-good movies and they got the drama in them sometimes a lot of intrigue sometimes suspense I i got no problem with a good romance well, and plus, I think that kind of got lumped in with more of, like, when we had that big romantic comedy craze, especially at, like, the turn of the new millennium. There was just, uh-huh. like, being pumped out every week. There was, like, a, some shitty, or sometimes good romantic comedy that got lost in the shuffle of all the shitty ones. And we don't really get just, like, actual romance-themed movies that much anymore, unless it's, like, a Nicholas Sparks thing, which is another problem. That's a very good point. I actually can't remember the last, like, just pure, it was just a romance movie. I can't remember the last one, unless it's a period piece that typically doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were a lot of attempts after Titanic, how many period pieces. Yeah, exactly. That we had. And interestingly, I think uh, Titanic took a bit from our first feature, which we should get into, which was my pick, Somewhere in Time. Richard Collier is about to begin an incredible journey. That's Elise McKenna. Starred in a play in the hotel theater. When was this play done? 1912. Is time travel possible? That is a question. Is he the one, William? Walk with me, please. 
haunting story of the link between a man and a woman, a link that goes beyond time itself. Universal Pictures is proud to present Somewhere in Time. Someday, in the past, he will find her. So, Somewhere in Time, as I mentioned, came out in 1980. It is directed by Jeanette Schwark, um, who is a director mainly known for really shitty, awful movies from, like, the 70s and 80s. Like, the movie that got him this was the big box office grocer Jaws 2 that nobody likes. Um, but And then from here he would do films like Supergirl and Santa Claus the Movie, which we've referenced Ooh. before. <laughs> But this was sort of his, like, blank check movie after he got a lot of money off of Jaws 2. It was written by Richard Matheson based on his book, uh, Big Time Return. I mean, Richard Matheson was obviously a great science fiction writer of his era. Wrote a lot of Twilight Zone episodes that were famous. Um, also been involved with, like, writing several big science fiction movies as well. And uh, stars Christopher Reeve in his first post-Superman and Superman 2 movie. Yeah, and uh, it's hard to watch movies with Christopher Reeve on them for me because Superman was so important to me growing up to anything with Christopher Reeve and after, you know, what happened to him, it's like, oh, man. I just feel bad almost the entire time. But, you know, the funny thing is, I was watching it with my wife earlier, and uh, in Superman, you don't realize how actually fucking big and broad-shouldered Christopher Reeve is. Mm-hmm. You see him in this movie, and he's got on, like, the old-style suit, and he's just dwarfing everyone in the movie. That's true, yes. Especially, especially poor Jane Seymour, who's like probably oh. average height, and then he's massive. That <laughs> fast. It's like a like Fessick and Inigo Montoya like sort of situation. And especially even like Christopher Plummer, who I always thought was like a taller actor. It's like, oh no, he's completely dwarfed by Christopher Reeve. <laughs> um, and, but we should definitely talk about I think I've been discovering a lot more of his other than Superman roles fairly recently. And we really just took that guy for granted, considering how very versatile and talented I would argue he was, especially around this time. Like, one of my my favorite, even considering Superman, role of his is in Death Trap, which is a movie I'd love to talk about on this show. I don't know that I've ever seen that. Oh, it's such a great movie with him and Michael Caine. Sidney Lumet movie, so good. So good. Back pocket. With uh, Somewhere in Time, this was, I think, the first one I also watched of his that wasn't like Superman related. And what I really like about this is that he kind of has the youthful confidence at the beginning of the movie, where for those who might not have seen this movie, um, the basic premise is he plays a playwright who in the early seventies, he is at like this big party after the first performance of one of his plays. And an old woman comes up to him, hands him a pocket watch and says, come back to me and then leaves. And then several years later, he's become a successful playwright, but he's in a writer's block bit, and his girlfriend, who he met in college, broke up with him. But he is entranced by the idea of, like, finding out who that woman was all of a sudden again. And he goes to this hotel where she was, and they explain that, oh, she used to be an actress, she performed a play here back in 1912. And he discovers the ability to time travel, because he finds this guest book that had his name and his signature written in it. And he decides he's able to do that through sort of suggestion through the mind, basically, to completely think that he's in 1912 and he's able to get there. Which, on paper, that is such a sweaty fucking premise. It's so fucking crazy. It's <laughs> such a... Like, if, if I told somebody that, they'd be like, that sounds fucking stupid, Thomas. How can you convince me this is a good movie? But I think what works is the fact that 
Christopher Reeve feels like he's very much in a less than confident state when we get to him in, like, the early 80s. After we see him so, like, you know, what we think of Christopher Reeve is just, like, you know, very confident and tall and commandeering. And then the way that his body language just transforms when we cut to, like, 1980 and he is kind of, like, in a rough state. And this feels like just something that he's gaining confidence back in himself by doing this. I think that's what really sells it, is his ability to sell it. Like, he really wants this because he finally has, like, a purpose again. Would you agree? Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. So I saw this movie for the first time when I was very young. My mom had it on VHS. She loved the movie. And I always remembered it. This is the first time I've seen it probably since then. But I always remembered, like, loving it. It was probably because it was Christopher Reeve. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, it's Superman. And I'm a huge fan of Richard Matheson stuff. So, I mean, yes. that's always a plus, too. I was into the time travel idea. I think it's a it's a different idea, different way of doing it just by power of suggestion, basically. You can time travel. I'm totally on board for Christopher Plummer. I think he lights up the screen in this. He's so fantastic. I've always loved Christopher Plummer. I mean, that guy can fucking shoot a look. And you're like, oh, 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 oh. he's so good. I found Christopher Reeve, when he went back, to be very stalkerish and creepy. Where she's trying to leave and he's grabbing her by the arm. And he's, you know, no, 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 don't, you can't go. I, I, you know, I've, I'm here for you. She's like, what the hell? Like, she kind of knows because Christopher Plummer warned her about guys like him. But still, it's just, I, this was kind of a chore for me, this one. I was worried revisiting this because I hadn't seen this in probably about, like, five to eight years or so and i was worried that like that might come off a bit awkward to me but i think the movie intentionally knows that at the same time because jane seymour doesn't immediately just come to him or like completely go for his advances she is also kind of weirded out creeped out a bit by him but But doesn't take very long like she's not really weirded out and creeped by him that much dude it only takes like eight hours until she's you know walking him out he's walking with her and then it doesn't take that long. I don't know, man. I just, I couldn't connect with it. I, it's not like the problems I had with it were like, I was offended by it. I wasn't offended by it in any way. I was more or less puzzled and bored. Well, what I think works about like their relationship is, like I said, I think she is very kind of, she's turned off a bit by him initially. She thinks his advances are a bit odd. And, you know, she separated up with Christopher Plummer by him, away from him. And then there's that scene where actually after, like, there's the dancing and he, like, comes in. That's the moment where she is just like, I don't know why the fuck you're doing that. You're kind of being shitty about this. But she's still intrigued at the same time because what works is she's been sort of in this rut of being under Christopher Plummer's thumb for so long that I feel like she has a curiosity about him that once she's able to like, okay, let your guard down a bit, I'll give you a bit of a chance, she suddenly has this like actual affection I think grows between those two. I think it's mainly on the strength of the actors. I do agree that it's, like I said, it's pretty sweaty during the opening bits of this movie, (laughs) but... At the same time, I think, like, she is intrigued enough to be like, okay, I will, you know, I want to consent to at least, like, seeing what the hell you're about, because you're weird. You're a bit interesting. And then I think from there, they have an authentic chemistry that I think really grows, like, the... It's interesting, because she doesn't actually show up as Jane Seymour, the younger version. Doesn't show up until about the 40, 45-minute point. Mm-hmm. And they're together for about 45 minutes of the movie before the big thing happens, which I want to talk about. I think Which is fantastic. Sells this fucking movie so hard for me. Yeah. Um, but I think that wouldn't necessarily work as well if I didn't think their chemistry was authentic. Did you at least not feel that between the two actors, that it wasn't authentic? No, I definitely did. I mean, 
let's face it, they're they're both beautiful people. Um, they're both very charming and endearing. I, I definitely did, yes, feel chemistry, and, and I like what you your point about the Christopher Plummer character, where he's been so overbearing in her life and everything. But and it does feel like you know almost like a teenage girl rebelling against an oppressive father sort of idea. But I didn't buy that they shared this fantastic storybook love in the span of a week. Like I bought that that it was blossoming. It could have happened. It was on its way. They did truly care about each other. But for it to be what it became, which ultimately led to the, you know, the Christopher Reeves character conclusion and everything, I I just didn't buy it. I have a lot of problems with the very, very end of this. I do agree that I think it's more a case of, like, they both got kind of caught up in this. I don't know if it's necessarily the truest love, but I think it's authentic love that both people needed at that exact time. For Christopher Reeves' case, it was definitely like he felt lonely. He felt like he wasn't really, like connecting with anybody he had such a writer's block that he couldn't really express himself creatively or in any way and he's found something in the form of like this woman who initially he has just as like an object in the same way that honestly christopher Plummer kind of does christopher Plummer treats her like such an object the difference is that after he his bullishness kind of is turned off he does try and be a lot more sort of like calm and quiet about like i love the moment so much where he comes up to her and he just says take a walk with me please he adds that please he gives her Mm. the option to actually you know like it's a it's a question it's a plead but it's something that she has to ultimately decide herself and i think she's charmed by him finally taking down his defenses in a way christopher Plummer doesn't throughout most of the movie and how Uh much he's commenting like he even says at one point later on it's like you think i was just trying to get a wife out of this she's a great actress she's my like this is all physical yeah right Right. No, he definitely loves her as a father slash like agent. When he goes in there after, um, you know, he has his his thugs beat up Chris Reeves, and he's sitting there and he's just lying through his fucking teeth to her that he left, and then she just lays into him, like you know, you can't control me. I love him, but and the look on his fucking face, where like, oh dude, it's almost like I'm gonna lose her, like no matter what. I thought I took care of it by taking him out of the picture, but it's so far gone now. Like, I I cannot keep her anymore. Like, he's a piece of shit. Mm -hmm. But in that one moment, you just saw the fucking vulnerability flash up. The simple look. I I just, I think Christopher Plummer honestly stole the fucking movie for me. He, Reeve, and Seymour are a really great sort of trio. That's like, it's not quite a love triangle as much as it's just like it is a... Two lovers and an obstacle in the middle. Reminds me of like almost like a Romeo and Juliet or a West Side Story, where these two want to be together, but there's a parental or you know an older figure keeping them apart. Any kind of societal issues are represented by just a Christopher Plummer coming in. And to be fair with Christopher <laughs> Plummer, like I knew that was cemented the moment like all the all the money in the world shit happened, and fucking Ridley yeah. Scott's like, hey, we have a month. Can you come and reshoot? <laughs> Like, all these scenes that like, a, a certain person was in. Yeah, of course. He got an Oscar nomination for it. He deserved it. Um, he was the best of part of the course. whole movie. What we're talking about with a lot of sort of, like, the romantic shorthand of sorts. I think that's something that Matthews, obviously, is kind of, like, baking into the story between those two characters. Um, I, I think it's this is definitely written as, like, a bigger sweeping romance than it necessarily would be in reality. But I think it's enjoying that perspective of just, like, this is a weird sci-fi story that Small and we work in big sweeping romantic gestures but i think that still works at the same time for the universe this movie's building up 
I would argue. And I think a lot of the others also time travel stuff I think fills out things pretty well. I like the use of, say, the bellhop and how we see the younger version of him as a kid. Yeah, that um, part was great. <laughs> yeah, and how he connects with this little boy with the ball and all this other shit. I, I think a lot of that sells him as a much more sort of convincing person that isn't necessarily a huge creep. Um, I, I would argue. I think that it shows that he has a very sweet, tender heart that's working through. No, I'm, um, not, saying he's a, I'm not saying he's a creep. I don't think right. he's a creep. But it comes off just maybe even with certain camera angles or, like I said, the certain grabs or even dialogue choices to where he's sort of forcing himself into her life and upon her. Like, maybe after this scene, no. But until that point, it's 100%. I, mean, I think that's very intentional on the movie's part. And I think it does a great job of actually building. I don't building. know that it is. I don't know that it is, to be honest with you. Um, because things like that, male against female, characters a lot in romance movies that's how it was the man was the assertive one i mean that's the way it was done back then in movies and tv and books and everything else and the woman would just eventually oh accept the advances and then she'd fall in love i mean that's literally how all the old i hate to say it but even the barbarian movies the old uh you know Pride and Prejudice and all these things. That's how it was. I think it feels more authentic, the fact that he initially comes on, he's just, like, staring at her coming toward her, and she's like, who the fuck are you? This is weird. And then it isn't until, like I said, that moment where he allows her to make the choice that she finally says, like, all right, I'll give you a chance, and then that connection builds from there. I would argue the movie is intentionally, when they first meet, establishing the fact of, like, hey, this is fucking weird. This is a really weird situation, and there's clearly something rubbing off against these people. And especially even when he comes in during the dance... And she's like, why the fuck did you do that? That was really no. weird. I'm, you, I don't know you, dude. <laughs> no, I, I, I agree with you uh, in a way, but you got to figure the first line of dialogue she says to him is, is it you? And she says it in a way where it's like, oh, shit, does she know him? Like, it doesn't come off like, holy fuck, who are you? You get the idea. Maybe she's already into him. And then after the dancing, which is like, well, who the fuck are you? You know, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, well, why did you say, is it you? You get this idea that she's playing coy with him and everything. I'm not saying you're wrong. I don't think you're wrong. I, I, you probably are 100% correct. That's just not what I got out of it at all. Mm-hmm. I definitely got the typical James Bond asserts himself on a woman sort of idea. This isn't a pussy galore <laughs> situation. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. Nothing like that. Not no. It just came across like Chris Reeves, like, I know I'm here. I'm here for her. She doesn't know me, but goddammit, she's gonna. I can see how it might come off to some degree like that. I'm not going to disagree that it kind of comes off weird during that opening part. But, you know, you mentioned James Bond. This is a score written by John Barry, who was most famous for doing the James Bond scores from, like, Connery all the way through, like, Timothy Dalton. And I love the score. I fucking love this score so much. It's so different for him. It's such a beautiful, sweeping score that, interestingly, was motivated by his parents had died, like, a couple months prior to when he wrote the score for this, and it feels like a very romantic but haunted score that has, like, a lot of loss in it. Yeah, I agree, and it's used in, you know, several different ways, the same song, and it works. I.e. the beginning, when he's playing it on the piano, and then when he gets sees the music box and he opens it, and then when he's humming it on the boat, and I was thinking, I mean, it just works in, in many different levels. I agree with you. It's a, it's a pretty song. Now, I've heard the song in other movies, and I, I for the life of me, can't remember what movie it was. It was that some movie where they're at a restaurant or a dance, and a piano player starts playing it, and everybody gets, like, all romantic and dancing with each other. But, but that's besides the point. I've always known the song. Um, as soon as I heard it, I'm like, oh, yeah, of course, this song. 
So that was ingrained in me when I was very young. It is a beautiful score. Beautiful song. Right, and it's uh, Rhapsody on a Theme by Rachmaninoff. It's the one uh-huh. piece of like classical music that John Barry uses. Um, but I th- it, he also manipulates it in a lot of ways that I found like really like sweeping and tragic at the same time. Um, and also a credit to the costume design, which was nominated for an Oscar. James Cameron took a lot of this for Titanic in terms of like the look and the aesthetic and a lot of like sort of the romantic angles as well. Um, though he stretched it out over three hours and added a lot more boat disaster <laughs> in the middle of it. Yeah. Now this movie is 108 minutes, 104 minutes, something like that. Mm-hmm. Did it feel long to you? Honestly? No. No, okay, so for me, it felt maybe a good, not by much, maybe 10 minutes too long. Like, I think this story could have easily been told in 90 minutes. I mean, I don't necessarily feel that, because I think you need the amount of time, like, they're there together, which, like I said, is only about 45 minutes of time to, like, make at least you feel invested in the very end of this. And I think mm-hmm. even, even some scenes that might some people might say run along, like her performing at the play... I think is great. Uh, no, I, I think that's necessary. Yeah, that's no, incredibly necessary and vital. And it's a beautiful moment for Jane Seymour where she goes off script, but she talks directly to the audience and you feel like she's almost talking to you as she's mm-hmm. saying things, but she's speaking obviously directly to Christopher Reeve. It, that is such a beautiful moment. And then the two of them together, it's like what, what works, especially watching it this time, admittingly, so many signs are there, like, this is doomed. There was no way this is yeah, there's Yeah, at all. It's very tragic. No, for for a variety a, of reasons, it's very clear. Like yeah. this romance will not last. But right. I still think what works is that their chemistry is so good together. You want it to, despite that. You really, really would want like these two crazy kids to be together in the middle of this. I completely forgot about how it wrapped up. Right, which like like, like we should go into that. Um, it's weird. I'm gonna declare a weird spoiler warning for a nearly 40 year old movie because i'm sure most of you haven't seen yeah no sure 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 but holy shit like when this first hit me it hits you like a fucking ton of bricks (laughs) just the moment like they are just having a casual conversation she's like oh you need to get rid of that dreadful suit it's like what you don't like my suit i mean look at it that's a very cute Uh moment of the two of them together just like i mean look there's a little coin pocket and everything and he sees that fucking penny fucking penny i know from 1979, uh, the smallest, most insignificant thing. And they establish early on that, like, you have to be completely immersed in the period. You can't have anything modern there, or else it'll get you out of the period right. that you're in. Because um, he even has, like, the tape recorder, and I like that touch of, like, he keeps uh-huh. listening to it. It's like, oh, wait, you need to get rid of this thing. Just use uh, me speaking to myself about it. Sure. And then, and then that, that fucking penny shows up. And I think, especially, uh-huh. this is where I think the direction is at its best. Where, like, you just see that penny and everything just fucking drops no music no nothing yep. and you just look at that penny it's just and then, her screaming his name and then you know fish eye out oh so good so fucking yeah, sad. i agree as soon as like she had the watch in her hand and that scene i'm like oh fuck it's about to happen yep because i'm like oh no because i completely forgot when it happened or whatever or how it happened i'm like oh no it's about to happen oh fuck me and then he's like yeah you, you don't like my coin and it's like, wah, 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 no, basically. <laughs> well, yeah, and it may... like, oh, no. Yep. It's yeah, very it... heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. It's fucking terrible. <laughs> it's so sad. Yep. You're like, oh, shit, man. And then how haunted he is after. He looks like he has conjunctivitis in both eyes. He's been crying so goddamn hard. Well, yeah, yeah. And especially how emaciated he is, because that was a big worry that Chris Reeve had doing this. Just like, after being Superman, will people believe I could die of, like, a broken heart? 
and he sells it. He sells it. He is just haunted as a person. His soul has left him when he comes back to 1980. He is just completely gone, especially just shots of him, like, outside of the hotel where it is now, and the boats are going by, and there's trash everywhere and seagulls. You're just like, oh, God. <laughs> just everything's gone for that dude. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, it's terrible, but I... I okay. I don't like that he died the way he did. Honestly, in my opinion, it would have worked better if he would have lived to old age like she did, and then when he dies of old age, then it shows them young again together. Fine, make him tortured, make him whatever, but just basically taking himself out, I felt kind of cheated by it. Well, they do establish two things. One, that when he does go back in time, it exerts so much out of him. They establish it's like you're going to be like famished and awful when you get out of this. So they establish even right after he gets back out that he is like com- incredibly sweaty, even thinner than he was when he went into the like exerts so much energy. But then I think I personally thought he, I, it was an authentic sort of him lacking the will to live because of like I said he's a guy who has so much pride and confidence in like one particular idea. Like he was so gung ho about this, he was about to throw away his entire like playwriting career through so much to like be with this girl. Which, like I said, you can argue that, like, the romance is a bit, like, sweeping and immediate. But I believe at least that character can put so much in one basket. And when that basket breaks under him, I just think he doesn't know where the fuck to go. I would argue I think Christopher Reeve sold that element of his character. Where I wouldn't necessarily make the decision, but I believe that character would make the, like, just have no impulse to really keep going. After just devoting so much time to getting to that particular place and to that particular girl. And especially when he comes back and, like, the, the moment that hit me that I completely forgot about is earlier on you um, see him look at this picture of her, this actual photograph. And later on you see that moment where the picture's taken and she's looking at him off screen at the camera. And then later on he sees that fucking photograph again. Yeah, that was pretty, uh, pretty... I- tragic <laughs> like him looking longly at that fucking picture i think sells his motivation to do something like that and like i said i wouldn't necessarily do that but i believe that dude would do that based on how prideful he is i mean yeah maybe i mean i don't know what the hell i would do travel back in time to meet some lost love and then all of a sudden snap back into reality i mean oh there goes gravity that's what you say I see what you did. God damn it. You know, I did lose myself. Thank you for bringing me back. You should have never let it go. Go, go. Oh, no. You know, mom's spaghetti. Anyways, I don't know what I wanted. I don't know how I wanted it to end. I just didn't want it to end the way it did. I didn't. I don't like the idea that he came back, you know, fine, emaciated, tired, hungry, fine. But that he died of a broken heart, which, don't me wrong, is a very tragic thing. And, you know, what it actually medically happens, I, I have no fucking clue. But I would have liked to see him get old, like I said, as she did, and and have something to look forward to when he eventually does pass away. And then they're, they're reunited again. Uh, or, why couldn't he do it again? I mean, he immediately tries to do that, and it doesn't work. Yeah, but doesn't mean it's a one-time deal. <laughs> I mean, I I don't necessarily think that... To me, I don't think that necessarily matters, because I think, like I said, he lost that particular point, and I don't know if he can necessarily ever quite go back to it, because they even established certain things, like when he tries to get a room, and he's about to get, like, his room that he was actually in, he's like, no, yeah, I can't go in there. I can't, like, immediately see that. Oh, yeah, exactly. No, you know, you know what I honestly, I was sitting here talking to Heather about it, uh, which I thought would have been a cool thing to do. I mean, granted, I'm glad they didn't, but... 
if he would have dropped that fucking penny in the past, and then she would have picked it up and then shown up in the present. I would not be for that at all. That that sounds like a I'm, terrible studio ending. <laughs> it does. I'd rather that than, like, suicide by starvation, though. I really don't agree with that, because I think it feels... You don't feel that, like, him being completely just down Chris and falling to the point where he doesn't even give a shit about getting up doesn't feel authentic to a dude who's that persistent. Well, it does feel that. It does feel authentic, but it's just... It's a super downer. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I don't watch romance movies to be bummed out. If I watch a romance movie, I, I really hope the kids get together at the end. Are you that motherfucker who was watching Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes together? Just like, oh man, why did he drink the poison? Nothing. This is bullshit. No, yeah, because I didn't know how Juliet worked. <laughs> hey, don't drink the fucking poison. Oh. You were the oh, best oh, audience oh. member of 1996. Yelling out loud at the theater. Oh, <laughs> you were fucking Andrew Dice Clay. Just like, oh, I'm Andrew Dice Clay, in it. exactly. <laughs> oh, can't believe it. Oh, oh. fucking jerk. <laughs> Hickory dickory dock He punched out his clock Oh Can't oh. believe he did <laughs> uh, But I, I'm not necessarily Against like A tragic romance either I think that's obviously That's a genre that's existed oh. For ages And I, I think that I think it works authentically For who the characters are And that means way more to me Than having like A sudden sweeping Romantic oh, ending Yeah But I'm not against tragedy either But Don't you think It would have been Even more tragic And yet still heartfelt if he would have grown old without her and missed her and loved her and to me that's it's tragic and more redeeming until unless over than you know yeah he just uh lost the will to live all right fuck him (laughs) 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 when you say that on paper like if it's if it's an episode three thing where they just exposit like she lost the will to live no i I i'm not a big fan necessarily that where they don't establish the character well enough well yeah okay but I, I'd, I'd argue they established the character pretty well to where he would make that particular decision. And I I do actually really like the way that that whole ending bit is shot, where especially, like, he leaves his own body. I love that shot of him looking down at his own fucking body. And then even, like, the Jane scene where, like, all the way at the end. I like the, personally, that final shot of them together. Um, and, I you know, I think, like it's I said, it's... beautifully shot. I it's mean, be- it is beautifully shot. A lot of Vaseline on the camera lens in this movie. It's got some soap opera touches. <laughs> it's very Walters. I'm, I'm not denying that at all. <laughs> but I'll go ahead and I'll go into final thoughts because we have a whole other movie to talk about. Sure. Ever. I really dig Somewhere in Time a lot. It, it's a role that, like I've said many times, I think it shows off Christopher Reeve's range in a way most people, unfortunately, weren't aware of. I definitely recommend movies like this or Death Trap or Street Smart with uh, him and Morgan Street- Freeman. Yeah, that's a good movie. Yes, it is. Um, yeah. And uh, like to show off that like that guy was way more than just Superman and Clark Kent. He was, I think, a very charming, charismatic actor who had a lot of potential that you know was just snuffed out by a combination of obviously his tragic accident and unfortunately typecasting because people were so obsessed with him being Clark Kent or Superman. And I think this really shows off his potential as much more of like a persistent but at the same time charming and endearing lead that works perfectly off Jane Seymour. Um, I think it's, like I said, Janot Schwartz. It's his only good movie, but it's good enough to where I'm like, that guy was not untalented a director, despite, you know, Jaws 2s and Supergirls and such. Uh, he actually got director of Supergirl thing because Christopher was like, hey, I recommend this guy. I loved working with him in Somewhere in Time. 
That's how we got Supergirl. We mentioned Christopher Plummer, uh, MVP, as per usual. But at the same time, I think it's it's a great tragic romance that builds up a really good chemistry between those two characters, even despite some shaky ground early on. Um, and then just goes home with one of the biggest cinematic gut punches I've ever seen in any movie with that climactic moment. Brings it on home in such a tragic, but I think very beautiful way. Um, and it, it's one of my favorite of sort of this romance genre. Yep. <laughs> um, it's definitely a movie of its time. It's well acted across the board. It is very nicely shot. It's beautifully scored. The whole thing to me just came off sort of schmaltzy. And like I said, I just couldn't be, I, I don't know. And there's just something about it that irked me. Look, it's not for me. I understand why people like it. I think there's really cool elements to it as far as a science fiction love story. Very cool. Um, More heavy love story than the science fiction for sure. But it it does work. And ending with the penny is a fucking punch to the throat. I mean, there's no question. But it just, I don't know, didn't work for me this time. Well, and to be fair, that wasn't uncommon at the time the movie came out. It was kind of forgotten and dismissed at the time as sort of a weepy that's why I hear a lot of like contemporary reviews of 1980 call it. So like it's very much oh sure. it's a it's a weepy and it kind of disappeared at that time. Um, but I would argue it stands up better than most of the romance movies of around that era. And it's at least well worth seeking out if you're curious. Well, let's put it this way: I remember this one. Mm-hmm. I don't remember most of the others. So I mean, there's something there, I guess. Yes. Speaking of memorable, uh, let's get to a very memorable mm-hmm. movie. That um, has its own sort of cult following, The Room. A perfect world, a perfect life. I love you, Lisa. I got drunk last night and he hit me. It's not true. I did not hit her. Can't do this anymore. Johnny's my best friend. This will be our secret. You're having an affair with Lisa, aren't you? I need more from life than what Johnny can give me. She's a sociopath. She can't love anyone. You are tearing me apart, Lisa. The Room, a film with the passion of Tennessee Williams, directed by Tommy Wiseau. So yes, The Room, from writer, director, producer, star, and potential vampire Tommy Wiseau. Um, And you all, to some extent, are aware of this movie. It's become like a big cult favorite. It was a weird independent movie that cost $6 million somehow that was on the screen. I mean, what? Um, the it, fuck? <laughs> it was confusing to the crew as well. Um, you also might have heard of it from The Disaster Artist, which was a movie that came out a few years ago starring James Franco and his brother Dave about the production of this movie. Um, that was based off a book by Greg Sestero, the producer and uh, the guy who plays and Mark. Mark. Yes, yep. in the film. Yes, and I recommend uh, both the movie, but especially the book very handily because uh, they're great. Introspection to this weird fucking production that I'm still amazed happened at all. And you made a movie. Yeah, I'd love to read the book. And, you know, and this was your pick, uh, Adam. So, obviously, it's a big, famous, sort of, so bad it's good movie. But uh, why is it a particularly... Would you say it's the most famous? Um, of the new millennium, I would say. The fact that James Franco made, like, a decent indie movie out of it that got wide release shows that it was more popular than a Birdemic, necessarily. Right. Oh, God. <laughs> okay. Um well, let's put it this way. I've heard about this movie for a long time. I saw it on so many lists and I just saw pictures of Tommy Wiseau and I'm like, who the fuck is this guy? 
Like, he looks like he should be unloading trucks in Transylvania. How the fuck is he doing these things? But then you just hear the crazy backstory about the money and all the stuff. And then I saw the disaster artist. And I'm like, okay, I got to finally see the real movie. Look, I get that it's got the, you know, the Rocky Horror things where people throw spoons at the screen. Because for some reason, there's pictures of fucking spoons all over the movie. And, you know, stuff like that. And Tommy Wiseau is fun to watch in it because he's so fucking creepy and weird but to me this isn't even a so bad it's good movie this is just a horrible film it is horrible everybody in it is a piece of shit except for maybe johnny (laughs) even though he's kind of a piece of shit because but like dude what the fuck is going on in this movie like you could tell and this is not me like, take the disaster artifice out of it, where they give you subcontext and things like that. This guy made a movie that he thought was so American, and, like, it was so, like, just what Americans do and want, where he has no idea what American culture is. You can tell by watching this movie. It's so bizarre. To where, I mean, they're playing football constantly in this mm-hmm. fucking movie. And their tuxes in an alley, even. I mean, oh god, oh god, <laughs> the sex scenes. Jesus Christ! Oh, I mean, just the, you know, you're tearing me apart, Lisa. Like, this fucking guy is <laughs> so bad. But you can tell just when he ran the show. Like, he just had the money from where? I don't fucking know. Either he's dealing drugs or it's laundered money, or he's a, he is a vampire and it's just the fortune he's amassed over the centuries. I, I, uh, what? Like, I want to put a question mark at the end of the title. The Room? <laughs> like, what? what is this movie? Why is it called The Room? It's the place where most of the movie takes place is that one fucking living room. I'd say 80% of the that's, movie that's takes true. place in that one fucking room. When I first heard about this movie, I had seen, like, clips. There had been, like, internet reviewer people who had, like, cut it up, basically, and, like, examined the movie. And I'd seen those clips several times. All the famous ones, like, why, Lisa, why? Um, you tear me apart, Lisa. Um, the we're expecting. All this, uh, j- um, uh, it, it, this is it. I definitely have breast cancer. All the big ones. All the big famous bits that you've heard of before. Yeah. I'd, yeah, I'd, heard, yeah. I'd seen those several times. And this is the first time I'd watched the movie in full by myself not part of a crowd because the two times I'd seen the whole movie previously were in those screens you're talking about where it's like oh throw spoons and say all these other things um and whereas like with a Rocky Horror I do appreciate even watching it on its own without like the big crowd mm-hmm. um this one definitely has a lot more just spurts of like funny hilarious stupid shit as opposed to it, it's very poorly paced and there's especially the sex scenes at the beginning how there's like what three in a row like yeah, a dude, within like 20 minutes of each other. Right, right, and the, the only humor you really find out of that is in, like, just how they repeat the same footage over again. Or if you're watching oh, in a crowd, like, I remember my, one of my favorite moments of in a theater, just watching it with a bunch of friends, was somebody saying, I timed it! There's been only two minutes since a sex scene! <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful moment that happened uh, at a screening I went to, but when you watch it on your own, you feel so much longer. 
and the moments that are really funny stick out to you. I would argue it's still consistently funny bad enough to where it is enjoyable as a so bad it's good movie, but it's definitely one where, like, if you're aware of the jokes, if you've been spoiled by the really big moments, um, watching it in full by yourself doesn't necessarily consistently keep the humor going. It, it definitely, it's the, the amateur's production doesn't really play nearly as well if you're not with, like, a group of people who, especially haven't never heard of this movie before. It, it's definitely one of those where you wouldn't, I would argue, need a crowd to watch the whole movie. Absolutely. I mean, because I think most people have probably seen the super cuts. Yeah. Of, you know, the time or so freak out moments and things like that, or just the odd fucking delivery. Like, what, do you a chicken? Cheap, 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 cheap. <laughs> the, the, mo- the most underrated one for me is there's a point where Mark talks about just like, do you think guys cheat on girls do? And the way he says, why you'll say that, sounds like he knows what's going on. This is sinister. <laughs> like he's about to kill Mark right there. He's like, why you'll uh-huh. say that? <laughs> well, because can't fucking he he can't oh, differentiate God. the way he says things of course I no mean, at all no I mean, it, at all. it's all the same monotone it's, no matter what he's doing if he's drunk it's the exact same thing as when he's sober if he's I mean, if he's sad it's the exact same thing when he's excited i love uh, the bit where he comes back from work and he's just says like oh they tricked me and i am the fool <laughs> one of my favorite bits of the whole movie too yeah no really good i got a new client it's a bank oh yeah no you know i can't tell you about that it's top secret how's your sex life (laughs) (laughs) you're like what the fuck um but you know i want to talk about this in more of the terms of the romance um because the thing that most people kind of skirt around with this movie that's completely funded and mostly made by tommy was so um is how much he really fucking hates women clearly Because, like, clearly some, like, woman, either he was in a serious relationship and broke up, or more likely, he kept staring at a girl who worked as a fucking cashier, and she said, hey, no, get away from me, and he wrote this whole movie as revenge. I think that scenario is more likely. (laughs) He just has, like, this super vendetta against the the Lisa character, and reduces this, I feel so sorry for the actress, it's like Juliette Danielle, I believe is her name. Uh, yeah, Julia Danielle is forced to play this character who, one, isn't conceivably human. None of these people are actual humans. But no. she's also, like, a fucking muck monster of a villain who is just, like... <laughs> she she is constantly dismissing Johnny or completely mm-hmm. self-absorbed, and everyone is downplaying her. awful to her all the time. Right, and everyone's downplaying her the whole time. And the only other major female character is her mother. She has cancer, well, right, she's she, pushed aside. Right, she briefly mentions it and it's brushed off. It's like a character detail, you know, just something small that gets you invested. Yeah. Just like, oh, it's just something natural. She, you should stay with Johnny, by the way. It's true, I have cancer. Well, okay, Mom, can you please leave? Well, like, no, what the fuck? Well, especially with how much she just, like, does not give a shit about her daughter's happiness at all. Uh, like, how she does not feel happiness relationship whatsoever. To the point where she says, he got drunk last night and he hit me. And her first response is, Johnny doesn't drink. Uh-huh. That's her first well, I mean, response to that. Johnny works at a bank, dude. So he's got money. That's true. People who go work at banks don't drink ever. That's very true. No. No, never. Right, exactly. Yeah. And he's got money, so that absolves him of all possible sins. Exactly, because she, can, she can't support herself, Adam. Um, as no, not fucking mom keeps saying over she's, and over again. She's a dumb, dumb woman. Dude, she needs this fucking goddamn Frankenstein monster. Right, like, she, like, the movie constantly is just downplaying 
the Lisa character and saying like, oh, look, her Shrew's mother is completely downplaying her, but also she's right. Johnny can support her. Like, even Mark is treated as just like this guy who's like, you know, he fucked up, but he was like, hey, let's stop doing this. And Lisa kept wanting to do it. It's her fault that this keeps happening. Mark is pretty much absolved of any wrongdoing because he's, you know, Johnny's best friend, as is often said. He's my best friend. But let's not forget that his best friend fucked his best friend's woman. Right. Several times. But it's not his fault. And of course, like, even like their big fight scene that happens lasts for like a second. And they're like, Hey, man, let's shake hands. Okay, yeah, let's shake hands. And then they fight again, so it's a really weird (laughs) just confrontation. Um, But but just, like, despite, like, all the laughs that can be had, that stuff also really sinks in a lot more when you watch it on your own. Just like, wow, this dude just has real female problems. Even, like, the other female characters that are there just come in and out and just like, wow, Lisa's a piece of shit. Bye, I have to leave the movie now. (laughs) What about the one guy who shows up out of nowhere? You have to like, specify, the there's a couple of them. <laughs> yeah, but the one guy in the movie at all, like, I'm one of Johnny's best friends, and you shouldn't be doing this to him. Wait, are you talking about, like, during the party, when that one yeah. guy comes in? Well, the thing about that is... What the um, fuck is that guy? Though? Well, what, what, what's interesting is, if you read The Disaster Artist, they explain that, like, that was supposed to be the guy who was, like, with them earlier, like, the guy who was in Texas with them and falls over and all that other shit, but uh, that actor quit. So, oh, the, because of all the production like issues. the nerd guy with the glasses? Yes, that was supposed to be him, and then that guy quit. Oh. So then they were just like, oh, fuck, we need somebody for this scene. Random person. Come in. You're a gr- hey, grip. Come be in the movie real quick. <laughs> Basically. Oh, um, God. Uh, and, I mean, I mean, stuff just like the production, like, you know that, like, one corner, like, back alley area with the trash cans? Yeah. And how they literally that just, like, That was a hey, fucking set? Right, when there was literally an exact copy of that on the actual location where they were shooting and they didn't need to spend money to build. Right, they had the they had the permit to shoot there if they wanted to. Yes. But no, he wanted a real movie with sets and He wanted a big Hollywood movie. I want, come on, it's a real Hollywood movie. <laughs> I mean, this fucking guy. The reason, you know what, the reason I chose this movie is because of Tommy Wiseau. Yes. Who the fuck is this guy? Why is he still doing things? Why is he still showing... I don't understand why he's still getting, like, traction. Like, he's still popping up in shitty... By the way, shitty movies. But, like, there was that thing where, like, he did the Joker scene from The Dark Knight and people were, like, sharing it like crazy, got so many hits. This guy's a fucking tool. That was all done during, like, the promotion of The Disaster Artist, which I feel like, if it was ever gonna happen, it's there. Okay, like, yeah. I don't, I, I have more issue with, like, sort of some of the other stuff he's done, like, what he appeared in Samurai Cop 2, or oh, he's, done, he's done, like, some Adult Swim thing, some other things like that. I mean, it's it's just like, look, you spent $6 million on a vanity project that should not have been seen by anybody, and through the miracle of just your weird fucking presence, which I think is why people are attracted. It's He's just made his... a lot of money off it, too. Well, yeah, because, I mean, he goes to all the screenings all the time that, like, happen, and, like, you know what, if he just lives his life doing that, I'm fine with it. Like, you know what, yeah. sure, let, let, the, let the screenings happen, people have fun, and you get some money off this movie that you made, and hopefully... I don't know. You should be paying back some of these fucking people who were involved, since you barely did. It, it, I have more of a problem. I agree. When like we're just, we're doing this just as they announced, like he's doing a new movie called Big Shark, quote unquote. Yeah. 
Right, and like his also his the best friends one fiends that he did with Greg Sestero, which is like two movies. They're like it's uh-huh. a two part fucking movie, whatever. I don't give. My, we've talked about this before with like Miami Connection. I think of just like when these guys are famous for doing bad movies and they get enough momentum to make another movie. It's never that satisfying. It's no, never that, that interesting. He thought he was making something that was awesome. Yes, and that it was a really good movie. And then once people started fucking laughing at turning then he comes out oh no i always meant for it to be funny which is no, a classic move for like like um the the guy who made birdemic has a similar thing like all these guys have similar things. exactly like, oh bullshit no mm-hmm. you didn't you thought you were making something fucking special yeah so now he's riding the coattails of that and buying into his own fucking image so now all of his movies are going to have that little fucking now not promise now he's going to be winking at the camera every time yes like how weird I am like well you don't even do that because you are that fucking weird but I I just fucking enough of this guy I guess my thing is it's the whole the whole idea that this fucking guy who comes out and he's a fucking weirdo piece of shit clearly into something like illegal I'm guessing at least at one point and he's being celebrated to the point where he's like you know this part of like almost like nerd culture bullshit I mean, fuck this guy. This guy was horrible to everyone on set. I mean, he's he's was horrible to the female lead. I mean, the guy's a fucking asshole. Well, he's Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just don't... I, I... Which is why I'm so, like, because admittedly Greg Sestero, who we haven't talked much about, having written that book, and, like, what, what's so interesting is how he manages to make Tommy at least seem like somewhat of a tragic figure. I think that's what's interesting is, like, in the movie, they don't even go into much of, like, how he would go over to, like, Tommy's house and how it would be just, like, full of shit that he would have, like, sold off, whatever mysterious entrepreneurships he was doing. Uh-huh. And how he was just full of money, but he was a completely separated off, didn't have any human connection whatsoever kind of person. And I think Greg at least sells the idea that there is a lot of pity that he has for that man. Even though, through all of this other shit, even through all of this, like, room experience, he's still friends with that guy. I don't know how much of that is genuine friendship during hard times, um, and how much of it was, I'm gonna make some fucking money with this guy. <laughs> so I, I, think could... it's a, I think it's a little bit of A and B. Yeah. Honestly. Mm-hmm. I think he definitely did feel pity for the guy, but the reason anybody knows who Greg Sistero is is because of Tommy Wiseau. Right, and plus, even if in that, you know, the book, they established that, like, when Greg went out to Hollywood, Tommy was literally the only person that believed in him, that give him, like, literally let him stay in his weird apartment. That it's just like, oh, this is my sparrow partner, you'll stay here, <laughs> shit like right. that. Like, it, he definitely, it's a, a mixture of pity, gratitude, and then also definite, like, riding coattails. I think it's all three of those. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Which is, that's why it's so fascinating, and I definitely recommend, like, reading that book. There, there's so much of that. Yeah, that even, the, even the movie, which I did like, doesn't quite cover, like, just all of the avenues of that. It's such a fascinating story that I think it makes him look so much better than it does here. And it's through, like I said, completely pitying him. As opposed sure. to, you know, like, based on all the stories and all the other shit that happened. It's just, but I do definitely agree that if... Being aware of yourself after, you know, all this, like, nerd culture fame and all this other shit made him so much more aware of himself that doing another movie now. I don't want to see him just do his, like, wink and nod, like, oh, it's funny, huh? Right, exactly. Like, next movie, I don't have any interest in that. The only person who weirdly kind of has managed to have this cult fame but have no self-awareness whatsoever is, are you aware of Neil Breen? 
the maker of Faithful Findings. Oh God, I do know who Neil Breen is. Um, I mean, that's a guy who he's made several movies, and people keep gravitating toward it, but he has no perception of like, oh, you're funny, bad. He's like, no, people really like my message and what I'm saying in my films, so he just keeps making them. That's the perfect thing if you're going to keep making these movies. Oh yeah, I know who Neil Breen is. He's a fucking. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, we will talk about a Neil Breen film at some point on this show. We would have to yeah. at some point. But you know, I think we've exhausted a lot about The Room, so why don't you go into your final thoughts there, Adam, about The Room. All right. I think if you want to watch a supercut of this, fantastic. If you go to the theatrical and there's an audience who is participating, I got to imagine it's a good time. By yourself, this is a horrible movie. You, you are watching a movie... That is produced, directed, shot, acted by a narcissist. I mean, the guy is a narcissist. He just thinks because he has money, he can do whatever the fuck he wants to treat anybody the way he wants. And it's it's a terrible film. There's nothing good about this film. And I do want to bring up, uh, it's so funny. Um, after the newest Puppet Master came out, I, I went back and watched a couple of the old ones. They're terrible films. Right. Retro, retro Puppet Master. Greg Sistero is Toulon. Yes. With a horrible French accent. Oh, yes, it is. Possibly the worst I've ever heard. But I just thought it was so funny. But no, this movie, it's its hard because the thing is, you know, people are endeared to Tommy Wiseau because, oh, he's so weird. And, you know, but no, the guy's an asshole. And you see what his potential fantasies might be, especially against women on screen in this movie. Terrible, terrible film. Well, I just want to say if Tommy Wiseau or anybody related to Wiseau Films is listening, uh, these do not express necessarily the views of uh, Thomas Mariani about you necessarily, no. uh, because you might actually listen to this. Uh, no, um, I don't. Give us some I, money. For me, um, it, it's like I said, I think I was more familiar with this with like some of the backstories of what's going on. But regardless, watching it on its own, I do agree it that drags so much more. There are definitely bursts. Like, we didn't get to even talk about some of the more intrinsic little details of, like, Denny, a fantastically oh weird character that I'm not sure why the fuck How he's around. How fucking bizarre. Uh, such a, just a funny performance. Leave us! Leave <laughs> us! Um, Denny, what are you doing, man? Don't do drugs. <laughs> oh, You're God. not my fucking mother! And he's, like, 30. Like, clearly. And he's, and he's playing, like, what's supposed to be, like, 18. It's like, sure. I know, sure, buddy. Um, or uh, Chris R., another fantastically terrible character. I think that's the thing is, I think there are much more sort of like weird peaks that happen throughout this movie, but the thing that really shouldn't be ignored and is so often is really how the movie treats women in a very weird, vindictive way, and how it doesn't really have any of the men that are involved take much responsibility. Like, even at the very end, when Johnny's committed suicide, Mark just keeps saying, you did this. You killed him. This is all your fault, Lisa. It's just like, dude, motherfucker, you were involved in this. You were 100% involved. In fact, I'd say it's more his fault. <laughs> like, Don't think awkwardly kissing him on the forehead as he's laying there dead is going to absolve you of everything, which also oh, I do love that too, how awkward yeah. that him going down and kissing his head yeah, is. Uh, and, and it's another like, the, the, you know what, to compare it to our last film, the tragedy that takes place here doesn't feel authentic at all, as Tommy is just like going around doing the worst impression of Charles Foster Kane destroying his apartment. Um, yeah. 
um, just going, why did he survive? Why? <laughs> why? And, the, and then and then shooting himself. That is an unearned tragedy for a lot yeah, of reasons. Um, I that, do love that being drunk just signifies your tie tie gets looser, <laughs> and your tie somehow ends up on your girlfriend's head as well. <laughs> I'm drunk. I'm wasted. Uh, you know this stuff always hits me so fast. I am so drunk and wasted. I will. I will say where we're, we're talking about where it's just like, why does Tommy Wiseau have so much of an interest? Why do people have that interest in him? We're doing the impression of him right now. He is no, a, I like, agree. He he is definitely a figure that is easily imitatable. He there's such a fascination around him. I can see what people have, especially a fascination with this particular movie. But that doesn't necessarily mean I want to see another. Oh, it's Tommy was so aware of himself making a bad movie because I've seen some of the productions he's done elsewhere. Like he did the sitcom for Hulu called The Neighbors yeah. that was like really cringy because he's trying to be funny and it didn't work at all. I tried watching some of, like the Best Friends thing and that was just really boring really I, fast. Yeah. Um, I just, it's it's definitely a case where this should just be the vacuum. Anyone who makes these bad movies should take a lesson from our boy who did Miami Connection. Just like, yep. I did the one, I like that people like it, but I moved on with my life. Right. Do that shit. <laughs> like, have people well, love that, go to screenings of that particular movie, don't try and make another one. <laughs> we're doing impressions of Tommy Wiseau, but let's face it, people do impressions of fucking Donald Trump. People do impressions of George W. Bush, it doesn't make you like him. It's just, no. it's it's so bizarre and crazy. Right, but I mean, I could go into, you know, his arguably shitty standards of treating people out of films that have a lot of differentiation between, you know, the President of the United States. I didn't want to go yeah, into political yeah. angles on this, Adam. Brexit! So, right, exactly. That's exactly what I was talking about. Right. Um, for all of our British listeners across the bond. Uh, but, you know, let's... Um, I think we're clearly done here with The Room, and that's the end of our discussion of our two romantic films. Uh, but we have some uh, things to do before we do our picking for next week. Uh, we had some feedback to read, because we asked you all out there, not necessarily just your favorite rom- and least favorite romantic films, but your favorite cinematic romances that spread across all genres. And um, for- friend of the show, Scott Johnson, says, I would say the movie Her is one of the greatest explorations of love in cinema. Spike Jones took the premise of a man falling in love with AI, and because he made the concept of utopian sci-fi that treats the situation with utmost sincerity, the way it deals with like the loneliness and isolation, depression, long distance, and online relationships was incredibly visceral for me. You include the incredible cinematography, the transcendent score, and the award-winning screenplay. It stands as one of my favorite movies of all time. If we're talking more crowd-pleasing rom-coms, some I can name from the past decade include Crazy Bridge Asians, Love, Simon, Sing Street, The Big Sick, and The Spectacular Now. I hold on to good romance movies tightly, because I think, as a whole, there are several bad rom-coms that end up making the genre really frustrating or give really awful messages. Uh, But if we're talking the worst of the worst, The Ugly Truth, Gerard Butler and Katherine Heigl are guilty of being in lots of awful romance movies, but The Ugly Truth might be the single most sexist film I've ever watched, and it is flat-out offensive, depicting love from a straight-up pickup artist's point of view. I have not seen a single one of the movies he mentioned. Well, um, I will definitely agree with him about Her, I love. I think Her is such an interesting, especially sort of just a few years in the future kind of like sci-fi movie that I think really is honestly one of the most 
uh, predictive ones. I think some of the stuff that's predicted back in 2013 has come to pass now, and I think we're going to be in a her-style world in the next five to ten years, for sure, what it predicts there. But also, I do agree, it's one of my favorite Walking Phoenix performances, and it does a really good job depicting that sort of long-distance online relationship between, in this case, a human and AI, and it feels authentic. It's another sweaty premise that works really well. Um, and I really dig Sing Street and Crazy Rich Asians, and especially and The Big Sick and Spectacular Now. I do agree with all those. I uh, have not seen The Ugly Truth, uh, but I've been warned many times not to see it, and I have stuck to that. I mean, Gerard Butler in general, rom-com or not, is uh, not my bag. No, actually. not mine either, really. Brian Kane says, uh, The Wind Rises is one of my favorites of any genre. It's as much a love story of a man and his passion as it is of two people. And this is the Hayao Miyazaki, his most recent theatrical film, as of yet. Oh, yet to see that as well. I also have not seen that particular one. I've heard very good things. Uh, Luke McBride says in reference to this, um, Best Braveheart, Worst Ex Machina. I think Braveheart is overbloated bullshit. I've never seen Braveheart. Well, then, it's overbloated bullshit, I'm telling you right now. I mean, I've heard that from some people. I mean, there was a point where I'm just like, I should probably see that, and then Mel Gibson started being weird, and I'm like, I shouldn't see that. Yeah, right, I agree. (laughs) Do I want to waste three hours on seeing Mel Gibson a lot? I don't know. Probably not. No. Um, But no, I think actually, with Ex Machina, that's what ingeniously works about that movie. Without spoiling that movie, I just think that's the genius. Oh, just the, the fact that you got, like, Oscar Isaac being, like, a chauvinist pig, and then Dom Hall Gleason being like, oh, no, I'm the nice guy, I can save you, TM, I'm your nice boy, uh-huh. you want to fuck me now, robot Alicia right. Vikander? Alicia Vikander, right. right and, and she's like, yeah, sure, buddy. Sure. Hey, yeah, let's do that. Yeah. Give me your um, key card. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that fucking movie. I, I would love to discuss that, too, at some point. Mm-hmm. It's a great movie. And then uh, James Rodriguez says, uh, Peter Jackson's Brain Dead, Dead Alive in the U.S., centers around a sweet-natured love story between engaging characters told through the blood-splattered lens of a zombie tale. In terms of worst, uh, the Fifty Shades series focuses on a toxic relationship between a controlling, petulant man-child and his thinly characterized love interest. After an arduous trilogy, I was more convinced of their love for the materialistic lifestyle than for one another. Okay, well, I mean, Brain Dead is great. I mean, just the I kick ass for the Lord is one of the greatest things ever. I mean, it's a, it's a priest kung fuing zombies in a in a graveyard. I mean, how amazing! Very romantic uh, as well. Uh, incredibly romantic. But the thing about the Fifty Shades, granted, I haven't seen a single one of them. I've never, obviously, never read the books. I think my wife read the first book, maybe the second, but Dakota Johnson and uh, God, I can't remember his name. Jamie Dormer. Jamie Dormer hated each other. Yes. Like, they do not like each other at all. And it, from what I understand, you can just see it on screen. There's zero chemistry between the two. So, of course they don't. I mean, of course they wouldn't come across. And yet, they made three of them. They made a lot. They made a million dollars. To I mean, jump made- to conclusions, man. They made they made a bit more, but um, I I was interestingly I managed to see all of those for free oh, with no. friends, um, and that's the only way to really see it. But at the same time, those are not I would say so bad. It's good movies. I do believe though, if some fan, God bless them, decided to do the sort of like the Hobbit trilogy personal cut of just like all the funny bad moments, you could have one so bad it's good movie. You could have one of those. 
there's enough for like one movie in all three of those, but it's still such an arduous task to get through them all necessarily. I mean, there's funny moments. Like my favorite, probably funny bad moment in any of those is when um, Jamie Dormer is just like they're at a vacation home and they start hearing pianos. Like, what's going on? And then they go downstairs and he starts playing fucking Paul McCartney. Oh, and no. that was the moment I remember oh. just going like, what the fuck's happening? <laughs> and that's followed by a weird sex scene involving ice cream. But that's oh, a great. different story. Um, Isn't it so funny that Charlie Hunnam was signed on for that movie? And then at the last minute, oh, uh, schedule conflicts, schedule conflicts. Well, He's I mean, backed out. that also had to do with crazy sh- fans who were just like, hashtag not my Christian. That's not who Christian should be. Oh, get the fuck out of here. So, so they got Dime Store Henry Cavill. To play the character instead. Hey, Jamie Dorham actually is not a bad actor. In other movies I've seen him in, he's actually pretty good. I mean, I wouldn't be. I haven't seen many of the other things. I have felt that way about Dakota Johnson. Like that, the, that whole trilogy, she is struggling to make this character seem oh, legitimate, and she's been much better in other things like the Suspiria remake and uh, Bad Times of the El Royale, amongst other things. I think she's quite good. Right. Uh, the those Fifty Shades movies, uh, Fifty Shades of Awful, is what they are. Hey, 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 hey. Yes. Take my uh, wife, please. And then we had some feedback uh, related to our uh, last episode about the Jim Carrey topic uh, from Terry Marvin at Terry Marvin 63 says, The number 23 and I Love You, Philip Morris are two Jim Carrey movies I like. My very favorite is Jim Carrey in The Majestic. Um, we can comment on The Majestic briefly. Um, I think it's boring. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's boring. I think if it was a Jimmy Stewart movie back in the day, it'd be perfect. Uh, but yeah, no, I don't think Jim Carrey has the gravitas to take on that type of role. Well, no, and plus, it honestly just felt like it was a less interesting Pleasantville. Yeah, it. oh yeah, hundred percent. That, that's why it felt a lot. Which Pleasantville to be here was a movie very much of its time in that specific era for a lot of reasons. But I still feel at the same time it has it's doing a lot more interesting stuff than the Majestic is just literally a movie about like, hey, remember back in the sort of post depression fifties days? Why don't we go back to that? And it's like, um. You have like a laundry list right. of why, <laughs> yeah, why we, of why we shouldn't. Um, but I, it felt it, it's a very blanketly kind of boringly nostalgic movie. It's my least favorite Frank Darabont movie for sure because he's made such great yeah, me too. movies. And yeah. it, it's one of those where it's like it's not even terrible because it's competently made. It's just there. Oh no, yeah, it's, it's 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 bland. I mean, but hey, thank you, Terry. Yes, thank, thank you, thank you, buddy. Thank you for commenting. And uh, speaking of another thank you uh, from Adam Roche, uh, who is at Audio Joe on Twitter, uh, just gave it a shout out. Uh, just found the double edge double bill and really enjoying it. Hard subscribe. Check it out. Thank you. Thanks, I buddy. It. I mean, that's yes. awesome. Yeah. You, you know, anytime we a new listener that will comment, I mean, that just makes my day. That's true, yes. I remember someone on Twitter said this is like the people who you listen to or create stuff. If you don't want to comment because you feel like you're kind of bothering them, you're not bothering us. Definitely, like if you no. if, if you want to share some feedback, we're open. We're kind of desperate. Please. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> whatever you want. Whatever you want. We will read it. And we, we, we will yeah. also give you feedback. Yes. Yeah. We, we will definitely read your feedback. Um, and we thank you for it, along with all the other feedbacks that we read tonight. We also want to thank uh, Chris Oliver for the music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Emily Scarda for the art that's used in our show. She accepts commission at Fiverr with 2rs.com slash ee scarda. 
And um, also, you can find us on Twitter at DEDBpod and at DoubleEdgeDoubleBill at Gmail. On uh, the at DEDBpod on Twitter and Facebook, every Monday we put up a feeler about what are your favorite, least favorite things related to a topic we're going to be doing, and that's when we read it here. So definitely watch out for those posts on those social medias. You can also watch my own individual posts um, at NotTheWho'sTommy on Twitter and Instagram, amongst other things. And uh, I also do writing at MarianiThomas.WordPress.com where I write reviews and such and critical essays. And Adam is somewhere out there in time, I think. Adam, you gotta look in your pocket. Did you find the penny? Adam, don't look at the penny! No! Adam! <laughs> Gone. Gone from time. Um, and you should make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes as well as other feeds like Spotify, Stitcher, um, the YouTube channel, the, the Podbean app amongst other things. Uh, we're all over the place there. Subscribe and rate and review us, because that gives us more visibility. And like we said, we are desperate for attention. We will read it on the show. I mean, desperate. So desperate. So incredibly. We're just like starving Christopher Reeve over here. Just like, yes. please give us feedback. We need Oh, God. <laughs> what a terrible shame. Such a perfect man. <laughs> Such a shame. Uh, but uh, before we skedaddle out of here, Adam, uh, we got to do our picking for next week. And next week, uh, because the Academy Awards are coming out, um, we are going to go ahead and do an episode about Best Picture winners, which they might have mm-hmm. won these awards. Um, some of them maybe aren't the best. I agree. Uh, in fact, there's quite a few that you're like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know? Yes, yes, quite frankly, yes. So... Um, I'm going to prephase this. I got the good picks this week. Yes, and I have the bad. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. By process of elimination. I picked one that I haven't seen and one that I love. So we're just going to okay. go with that. And I'm picking two. One is uh, one I have seen and one um, that I haven't but have heard terrible things about. So, oh, well, hey. Could it, be something new for both of us. Yes, and for those of you who don't know the process, basically each of us have these two movies and we assign them a number between 1 and 10, and the other will guess number between 1 and 10. Whichever gets closest will be a good and then a bad feature. So for your two good picks, Adam, I'm going to go with number 7. At number 9, the one I haven't seen, Moonlight. Oh, great! I love Moonlight! Yeah, never seen it. Great! I always I'm want so to. I'm a that. huge fan of all the actors in it. So I just never got the chance, I guess. Uh, I'm excited for that. And at number two, I had um, The French Connection, All right, which is one of a, my favorites. That's a really great one. Yeah, I really enjoy The French Connection quite a bit. Fuck. Now, right. uh, my two bad picks, Adam. I'm going to go on the low end. I'm going to go number three. At number two, I had one uh, that's actually the one I haven't seen. Um, but is interesting, I think, relevant given a certain Best Picture nominee this year is uh, 1989's Driving Miss Daisy. Oh, I've seen that one. Okay. Wow. Cool. We both got ones we haven't seen. Yes. You know, I'm not mad at Driving Miss Daisy, dude. I'm really not. I mean, it, it's, you know, but I mean, the most time of it takes place in. Okay. I think you'll like Driving Miss Daisy. I, well, I don't know. I haven't seen it in forever but i have fond memories of that movie we'll we'll put that to the test um but then at number seven i had the one that i think we all would have expected uh which is crash oh god thank god (laughs) oh thank god (laughs) which which i mean that that one i remember that's the curious thing that was when i remember liking at the time when it originally came out 
But then again, I was also like much more easy to manipulate. So I was gonna say, to be fair, everybody liked it when it first came out. That's one of the ones where, oh sweet, Crash won, and then like within three months, like why the fuck did Crash win? Well, especially I'll never forget the moment where Jack Nicholson opened that envelope, and the winner is Crash. Like he just had it in his <laughs> eyes, just like oh god, oh no. The, once again, in a year where it's like, hey, Brokeback Mountain or any of the other nominees could have right. won, and we would have been exactly. fine with it. <laughs> Uh, and uh, but yeah, it'll be interesting with Dragon Mysteries considering the connection is Green Book, which is a movie that's uh, got a lot of comparison in a not so positive light. And Green Book, Marshala Ali is uh, in Moonlight. Yes, which he won the Oscar for. Yes, he did, and we'll be talking about all of that next time. Uh, but until then, Adam, we must say goodbye. How's your sex life? <laughs> Good night. Good night. <laughs>